Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Bibles to John chapter 14. We will eventually get there. I've got a long introduction this morning, so if you're thinking he's not getting to the text, I will eventually get there. It's just taking me a minute to build a case for what Jesus has to say this morning in John chapter 14. But have your Bible ready to go open to John chapter 14. And so I want to begin this morning with a very important question. How do you truly know God? How do you truly know God? I don't want anybody here to raise their hands. Actually, I do want you to raise your hands if if this has happened to you. How many of you have actually ever seen God face to face? Anybody here ever seen Jesus Christ in the flesh face to face? Anybody here ever had a direct encounter where God showed up to you visibly, physically, in an audible voice, and God showed up to you presently uh, in power? You know, a lot of televangelists claim this has happened to them. There's a very popular televangelist back in the late 80s who wrote a book called Close Encounters of the God Kind. And he was in his kitchen many times eating a sandwich when an angel of the Lord approached him and said, God really wants to take you to heaven, but you can't handle the glory of going to heaven. And so a few years later, he's in his hotel room. And he gets suctioned up to heaven in some type of a gold chariot. And he actually gets to go to heaven. And as he's walking around heaven, he meets Jesus. And he's surprised at how tall Jesus is. And then Jesus takes him to his mansion in heaven where there's a manicured lawn. And there's a fountain and all of these things. And then uh, Jesus is over in in the corner by this river crying. Jesus is weeping. And this televangelist goes and puts his arm over Jesus and says, it's going to be all right. And Jesus says, I need you to do something for me before I send you back to earth. It's very, very important. You need to go back and tell people that heaven is for real and I'm coming back again. And so this televangelist got suctioned back to earth and he wrote the book, Close Encounters of the God Kind. Now, Jesus' words last week, what did Jesus say himself? I've gone and I've prepared a place for you, and I'm coming back and I'm going to take you there myself. But you see, the story of this televangelist illustrates the desire that many people have to have a close encounter of the God kind, a direct revelation of God right before their eyes, like seeing God with the naked eye. And you see, we are created in the image of God. And there is within us this innate desire to want to see God. You talk to little kids, and and one of the things that they often want to say is, I can't see God. I want to see God. And so it's, it's one of these things that it's innate in the human heart that we crave to see God in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. I want to see God. 
That was Moses' request. Moses wanted to see God with the naked eye in all of his glory. Exodus chapter 33, 18 through 23. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. God, I want to see you. I want to see you in all your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses said to God, I want to see you face to face, and I want to see you in all your glory. And God says, you can't handle that. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and you're going to be able to see my backside glory. And what God does in giving his glory to Moses is not allowing him to see the glory, but to hear the word of the Lord about his glory. Notice what God says further down. I read it earlier during our prayer time. Exodus 34, 5 through 6. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So think about Moses for a moment. One of the greatest figures in all of the Old Testament was not allowed to see God face to face. God says, Moses, you can't see all of my glory and live. What happened to Isaiah when he saw all of God's glory. Remember when Isaiah was in the temple and he sees the Lord seated on the throne? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Does Isaiah go up and give God a high five? Hey, God, it's good to see you. What does he do? He falls down as a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm in the presence of a holy God. I'm about to die. I'm coming unraveled. How did Daniel respond when he saw the Lord? In Daniel chapter 7, you can go back and read it. He trembles. The color of his face changes. Daniel's terrified in the presence of the Lord. Isaiah is terrified in the presence of the Lord. Moses is not even allowed to look at the Lord face to face. What about Ezekiel? You go back and read Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel gets to see all the glory of the Lord and all of these interesting images and and visions. and, And he falls as though one who is dead, fell on his face. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, has said this. God is too great for us. He's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence, we quake and we tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. Meeting God personally may be your greatest trauma. Why is that? Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Moses was not allowed to see God face to face. Isaiah fell as though he was a dead man when he saw God. 
Daniel fell as though he was a dead man when he saw God. Ezekiel fell as though he was a dead man when he saw God. You fast forward to the book of Revelation, the apostle John fell as a dead man when he saw the resurrected Christ. So these weren't just average Joe Israelites. These were like major prophets, Moses, Isaiah. And they couldn't have a direct vision of the Lord in all of his glory. Now back during the Middle Ages, right before the Protestant Reformation, at the height of the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of these people wanted what was called a beatific vision. Basically, what they wanted to do was be able to climb these ladders to be able to see God in all of his glory. And so in the the Roman Catholic Church, they developed all these different ladders that you could try to climb in order to see God. And so there was the mystical ladder. This was some of the mystics. There was the, the legalism ladder that you could climb. All these different ways, if you just did these different steps, if you climbed these different ladders, and eventually if you got to the top of the ladder, the greatest thing would be able to see God in all of his glory. And this is what drove Martin Luther crazy. Because Martin Luther, as an Augustinian monk, he wanted to see God in all of his glory, and so he tried climbing all these different ladders to get to the top. He tried legalism. He tried mysticism. He tried all these different things, and he just got frustrated because he could never get to where God was. And then as he began to study the scriptures, Martin Luther, it dawned upon him, he, 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 he got frightened because he realized, hey, wait a minute. If I get to the top of the ladder and I get to see God face to face as a sinner without Jesus as my mediator... It's not going to be a beautiful vision. It's going to be a terrifying vision because what's going to be waiting for me is God as a consuming fire. You see, Martin Luther was trying to get to God without Christ. And see, throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, there's probably more, but I think there's been four predominant ways that people have tried to tap into the divine have a vision of God, get a close encounter with God. The different ways people have tried throughout the centuries to somehow get close to God. And all of these are without Jesus, by the way. So what are these four ways that different people have tried to somehow tap into God or tap into the divine or be spiritual? Here's the first, mysticism. And that may be a word you're not familiar with, mysticism. Mysticism is this whole idea that there is a spark of divinity within me. There's there's an island of of godhood within me, and and it just needs to be fanned into flame. And so through meditation or self-actualization or some type of mystical experience, I can tap into the God within me, and then I can reach a higher level of consciousness. I can, through a mystical encounter, somehow get closer to God. You often hear people who are mystical say something like this, I'm not really into organized religion. I'm not really into the whole church thing. That may be good for you, but I can, I can commune with God out at the reservoir or up in the mountains. It's just me alone with God and my own private little personal experience. I want to have this inner mystical experience to somehow tap into the divine. Mysticism is one way people have tried to get in contact with God. Mysticism. Well, the exact opposite of that 
is number two, moralism. If I just obey a good set of morals, then I will be able to see God. If I obey the Ten Commandments, if I'm a good person, if I drive the speed limit, if I keep my nose clean, if I pay my taxes, if I'm a good, upright citizen and follow all the rules, then I will be able to have access to God. I approach God through my morality. And this is very prevalent in northeastern Colorado, by the way where you have a lot of people that are trusting in their goodness, their morality, good, clean, God-fearing, God-and-country type people, and that's how you get to God, by being moral, being good. So mysticism is a ladder that you can try to reach God. Moralism is a ladder that you can try to reach God. Number three, for lack of a better term, fanaticism. This is your extreme, charismatic, word, faith movement that's on the fringes. People do things like grave sucking. You know what grave sucking is? You go to a dead person who, quote-unquote, had the anointing, and you lay over their grave, and you try to suck out their anointing so that you can be blessed. Teleportation, gold dust, barking like dogs, holy laughter. Uh, They treat the Holy Spirit more like a force that can be thrown around from person to person and being zapped with the anointing. And it's all really without Christ and the gospel. It's signs and wonders and all these crazy manifestations. And that's the way you get to God is through fanaticism. If I could just have this this extreme prophetic experience, they'll use terms like the extreme prophetic or impartation, or or things like that. The extreme fanaticism. So you've got mysticism, look from within, the spark within. Moralism, try to be a good person. Fanaticism, look for the latest, greatest sign and wonder. And there's some people that approach God, number four, through rationalism. i got to have good, rational arguments for the existence of God. I'm not going to believe in God unless he can be scientifically proved. And so I will use hypothesis, I will use reason, I will use science, I will try to somehow domesticate God and see if I will believe in him if I can prove his existence scientifically. So if I can prove God scientifically, then I will believe in him. That's the ladder I will go to to try to approach God. And see, all of these ladders fail miserably. Mysticism says look within to find God. Moralism says, try to be good to find God. Fanaticism says, try all these weird things to find God. And rationalism says, you've got to prove God exists to me before I'm going to find God. And people try because they want to approach the divine. They want to see God all of these different ways. And last week, what did Jesus say? I am the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it makes sense that if Jesus says, I'm the only way to God, right on the heels of that, he's going to say, I'm the only way that you can truly know God, see God, experience God. And it starts with a question that Philip asks Jesus. So let's pick up in John chapter 14. We're going to backtrack. We're going to start in verse 1. We read this last week, but it doesn't hurt to read it again. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. First question, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus gives the answer in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Second question from Philip, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. How do you get to God? How do you know God? Listen to what John Calvin says. He makes a very powerful statement. He says this. It is a foolish and deadly curiosity when men not satisfied with Christ attempt to go to God by indirect and crooked paths. In the French, it's more like tortured paths. Any path that you try to get to God without Jesus, he's saying, is crooked and torturous and misdirected because Jesus is the only way. To seek God apart from a mediator in Jesus Christ is both dangerous and damning because 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says this, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the revealer of God himself. What does Jesus say here? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, we've already been introduced to this way back at the very beginning of John's Gospel. John 1.18. Listen to what John says in his prologue. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one's ever seen God with the naked eye, not even Moses. No one has seen God, the only God, in all of his glory. But who has made him known? Jesus has made God known. And that word made God known, made him known, really literally in the Greek text is Jesus has exegeted God. Jesus has fully made God known. Jesus tells the whole story about who God is. And so if you want to know everything there is to know about God, Jesus says, look at me, because I am the visible physical expression of God on planet earth that you can see with your own eyes, disciples. Now, the, the, the 12 disciples, the 11 here, are able to see Jesus with their own eyes because he took on flesh right before them. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here's Jesus' main point of this little passage of Scripture. You can only truly know and see God with the eyes of faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. The eyes of faith. I'm going to be asking you over and over again this morning, do you have eyes of faith? Nobody here is going to physically see Jesus. Nobody here is going to physically see God in all of His glory. But how do we see God? How do we see Jesus? Through the eyes of faith. We can't see him, but we have to believe in him through the eyes of faith. Now, it's a good thing to want to know God. That's a good thing. I want to know God. I want to get close to God. I want to have a vision of God. I want to see God. I want to grow close to God. There's nothing wrong with that. That's an innate desire. If you are a Christian, that should be your desire. I want to know God. But here's the problem. When you try different ways to get to know God, besides the ways that he has shown us to know him, and that's through Jesus Christ, his Son. Through the physical, we can't see. But through the eyes of faith, we can. John 17, 3 says this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've seen. So what's eternal life? Knowing God. How do you know God? By knowing Jesus. Now what's Philip's question? Philip's question is the same question that Moses wanted. What did Moses ask God? Lord, show me all your glory. And what did God say? You can't handle the truth. He's going to put you in the cleft of the rock. What does Philip ask Jesus? Look there in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. I want to see a visible manifestation of the Father, Jesus. Show, me the, show us the Father, and that's going to be enough for us, Jesus. If we just had a, a vision of God, if we just got to see his glory, if we just got to see what Moses got to see, that would be enough for us. And what does Jesus say? Philip, it's a gentle rebuke there in verse 9. Philip, I've been with you for three years. You've seen me eat, you've seen me perform miracles, you've seen me teach, you've, seen, you've traveled with me, you've seen me in the flesh. You have seen God in all of his glory. You've been hanging out with him the past three years. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say? Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In John 5, 37, earlier, Jesus says this, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. Disciples, you've never heard the audible voice of God, except for maybe those few times at his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration never seen the physical form of God but you've seen God in the flesh standing right before you 
speaking the words of God, doing the works of God, it's me, Jesus. Now, this is not a claim that can come from some guru, some self-help teacher, some simple moral example. Only someone who is God can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That could have gotten Jesus, if he would have said this to the Pharisees, remember he's removed himself, he's with his disciples now. If he had said this publicly, he could have been stoned on the spot right then for saying that. Because he's claiming to be God. 1 Timothy 6, 15-16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. No one's ever going to be able to see God with the naked eye except through Jesus. Have you ever thought about the second commandment? For a moment, we talk a lot about the Ten Commandments, and we just kind of skip over them. Second commandment. What's the second commandment? Shall not make for yourself. Well, let me let me actually read it. Is it on here? Yeah, it is. Okay, good. I don't have to quote it from memory. It's on there. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. Now, you, you may think about this. Okay, I'm not going to go out and create a little idol in my backyard. I'm not going to take a little bar of soap and carve a little thing or a piece of wood or whatever. Why do you think the second commandment is so dangerous in forbidding us to create an image of God? Have you ever thought about that? Who's the only visible image of God that we have? Jesus. So any other image that you either create in your mind or create with your hand, you are taking away from whom God has chosen to reveal himself in physical flesh, Jesus. Jesus is the only physical image invisible expression of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, Jesus is going to give three descriptions here, examples of how he reveals the Father. So, the first thing that Jesus says here, first of all, Jesus is in dynamic union with the Father. Now, don't ask me to explain all of this, because I don't understand it. Is it okay, is it okay for me just to say this? There are some things about the Trinity, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we are never going to fully understand. That are unique, that are powerful, that are mysterious, that we kind of get a glimpse of what Jesus says, but it makes our heads hurt to think about it. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father... And the Father is in me. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. And then later on down there in verse 10, he says, The Father dwells in me. And then verse 11, Believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. So Jesus is in the Father. The Father's in Jesus. They have this dynamic relationship where they are sharing this unique relationship as God. That's why Jesus in John 10, 30 said, I and the Father are one. Now, there is a heresy that you could fall into if you're not careful. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? One God, three persons. 
Jesus is not the same person as the Father. Jesus is absolutely God. The Father is absolutely God. Both Jesus and the Father share everything that there is to share about being God, but they're two distinct persons. Did the Father die on the cross? No, Jesus died on the cross. So, the thing about it is, is that all of the fullness of who God is, Jesus is, except for he's in a body. And Paul says that in Colossians 2.9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of who God is dwells in Jesus in a, in a body. Jesus is the only member of the Trinity, uh, the three, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that has a body, that came in the flesh. The Father's Spirit, the Holy Spirit's Spirit, Jesus came in a body. And as he was on earth, he represented all of the fullness of God in bodily form. Again, I can't quite comprehend that. There's just some things we don't understand. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? I don't know, but the Bible teaches it. How can there be one God but three distinct persons? I don't know, but the Bible teaches it. There's a lot of things that the Bible teaches that we may not fully understand, but we've got to accept. So that's the first thing. Jesus and the Father are in this dynamic relationship. Number two, what does Jesus say? Jesus speaks the authoritative words from the Father. Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Jesus is the only one that can speak for God. He speaks the authoritative word of God. John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. If you want to hear from the Father... Listen to Jesus. You know, over the years, I've met many people that just want to hear God's audible voice. If I could just hear God's audible voice, I'd get direction. If God just showed up to me in a vision or an image or the, you know, this, 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 the sky opened and there was a beam of light and the, the powerful voice came from heaven and said, go to this college or marriage, marry, marry this person, I would just know what to do. If God just showed up in a, in a blinding light and in a powerful voice and an audible voice, does anybody else want, to, want that? Or is, am I the only one? Anybody else here want an audible voice? Okay. Let me tell you how you can hear God's audible voice. You're like, how's this going to happen? How can you hear God's audible voice? It's very simple. Open your Bible and read it out loud. Every time you read the Bible, you are hearing God's voice. And especially when you hear the words of Jesus, you are hearing the authoritative, all scriptures inspired, all of us the authoritative word of, of God. But notice what Jesus says here, my words are the authoritative word of God. So if you want to know God's words, you want the authoritative word of God, you want to know what direction you should go, God's words, just read your Bible. It's right there. Third thing Jesus says here. Not only are he and the Father in this dynamic union, and Jesus speaks the words of the Father, but Jesus performs the works of the Father. At the end of verse, 11, uh, verse 10, But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or believe on account of the works themselves. What are these works? Everything Jesus has been doing. The signs, the miracles, 
All of the, 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 the things that Jesus has been doing. John 5, 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. I speak the words of the Father. I do the works of the Father. Now, now we could just leave it at there, but notice what Jesus says to Philip and to all of the eleven. In verse 11, what does he say? Believe me. Believe me. I used to have a professor, not a professor, a teacher in high school. Here's what he would say. You can believe me now or you can believe me later, but there's going to be a test. You can believe me now or you can believe me later, there's going to be a test. And we used to kind of like, okay, you know, that was his little saying, believe me now. And sometimes people say, believe me now, believe me later, you can believe me now. What does Jesus say here? Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, listen, there are some truths that you need to believe about me. It's not just blind faith. This past week, Don and I were in a retail store, and we were talking with the person that was there, and this person was telling us about how they were going to sell their home. And we began talking, and, and I don't think this person's a Christian. Uh, from when I gathered, I, I, I don't know. Um, but they said, I know our house is going to sell because I just have faith. And just left it out there like that. And a lot of people operate that way. I, I'm just going to have faith. I, I know it's going to happen because I have faith. You hear people say that all the time. It's going to happen because I have faith. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that statement, but, but what's the faith in? Who's your faith in? You can just have generic faith out there. Jesus has not given you an option for generic faith here. Notice what he says. What's he been saying all along? Believe me. There's some things you've got to believe about me, disciples. You've got to believe I'm the only way. You've got to believe I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. You've got to believe that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've got to believe that I speak the words of the Father, that I do the works of the Father. You've got to believe these truths about me. It's not just blind faith. Jesus says there's some reasons why you need to believe in me. Now, what are the implications or applications from this passage of Scripture? Because in a way, it's kind of unrepeatable. The, the 11 disciples had the privilege of seeing Jesus face to face. It's easy for them to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They got to see Jesus. Like I said earlier, anybody here seen Jesus? Anybody here seen the Father? Anybody here been to heaven? If you have, I want to see you after the service so we can have a talk. So we're in a different category. We are believers 2,000 years removed, post-resurrection. Our whole belief system is in something we cannot see. But Jesus says here, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So let me suggest for you three things that I want us to think about. Three applications from this. Three ways that we can kind of bring this into, into real life. And I think the first one is something that you may not have thought about before. Here's the first one. First of all, we must try not to use generic God talk, but clarify that our faith is in Jesus Christ as the only way to know God. Now, what do I mean by generic God talk? Everybody uses God talk. An athlete scores a touchdown, I want to praise God. An actress who was in a rated R movie who did all these crazy scenes gets up on the Academy Awards, I want to thank God for giving me this Academy Award. Muslims use the word God for Allah. 
In our culture, it's not offensive to use generic God talk. God bless you. Do you believe in God? I thank God. God bless America. Nobody's going to be offended if you just say the generic word God. But when you start saying Jesus, that's where people start to get offended. And we've got to make a decision as Christians. Are we just people of the generic God? Or are we people who believe in Christ as the only way? So I'd encourage you, in your talk, don't just be generic about God this or God that. Be very specific about Jesus. We were driving home from an event last night, and I called my parents because they had called, and my, my dad said, I offended some people this week. And I said, what did you do to offend some people? Well, they live in Sun City, Arizona, um, half the year, and they had their um, neighborhood um, annual picnic, and my parents were in charge of it this year. And so last year, somebody prayed before the meal. Well, this year, since my parents were in charge, my dad said he was going to pray. So he prayed for the meal, and at the end of it, he said, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, two days later, at the, at the you know, board meeting, word got back to my dad that there were some people that were offended, that he should have been more ecumenical and more open, that he was too constricted by praying in Jesus' name. And my dad said, oh, well, if I'm going to offend people, I'm going to offend people. But I'm not going to back down and just... So, so let's think about our language. Let's make sure that our culture understands that we are Christians who believe in Jesus Christ is the only way. And in, when we talk about God, let's not be generic in our God talk. Let's be very specific that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way that you can know God. Second application point. The written word of God is thoroughly sufficient for you to know God. Okay. You can't see Jesus. You didn't get to see him raised from the dead. You didn't get to see him perform the miracles. You didn't get to see him die on the cross. You didn't get to see him appear to you on the road to Emmaus. You didn't get to see him appear to you um, like Paul did. None of you here have seen Jesus with the physical eyes, but how do you know who Jesus is? How do you know how to be saved? How do you know that he's faithful? How do you know that he's true? Because the Bible is thoroughly sufficient to tell you these things. You see, we look through the eyes of faith. We can't see Jesus with our physical eyes. We look through the eyes of faith. And so when we read this scripture, it is thoroughly sufficient to tell us everything we need to know about God. Right here in the written word of God. It's interesting. Who do you think was the greatest apostle that got to see the greatest amount of stuff? Let's just guess. Who do, you think would, who do you think would be the top apostle that got to see pretty much Jesus do the most amount of stuff? There are three, right? Peter, James, and John. And Peter, interestingly, was at the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus appears in all of his glory and then Moses and Elijah and, and Peter says, hey, let's build, a, let's build a, a tent so we can stay up here on the top of the mountain? Peter got to see Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter got to see Jesus raised from the dead. And do you want to know what Peter writes in 2 Peter to us who were not there to see it? Notice what he says in 2 Peter 1, 17-21. He's talking about that moment. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by him of the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter saying? As great as it was for us to be there, to see the voice of God from heaven, to see the glory of God, there's something greater than that. The written prophetic word of God. And you all have access to that. Three people got to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But millions get to see Christ through the pages of Scripture. And Peter says, as great as it is to physically see Jesus, you've got the written word which is totally sufficient for you to see everything you need to see about Christ. So if you want to see Jesus, just pick up your Bible and read it. And here's the third thing. It's one thing for you to know about God, but it's vitally important for you to truly know God. See the difference there? There's a lot of people that know about God. Oh, I know about God. God is good. God is my creator. God is everywhere present at all times. God's all-powerful. God's faithful. God's just. They could list off all the attributes of God. Oh, I know who Jesus was. He died on the cross. He rose again. He lived for 33 years. He had some disciples around him. He taught this. He taught that. You have Bible trivial pursuit. People can spit out the answers. But there's a difference between knowing some facts about God and truly knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you personally know God? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. It's through that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know the Father? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, We walk by faith, not by sight. And that's hard, isn't it? You think about our relationship with Christ, you can't prove Jesus to anybody. If somebody comes and says to you, man, you've got a weird religion, you're believing in something you can't see, you're right. I'm believing in something I can't see. I'm walking by faith, not by sight but I've got the written word that gives testimony. I've got the historical record of Jesus rising from the dead. I am living by faith. I'm living through the eyes of faith. But do you know where all of God's glory shows up? What did Moses want to see? Show me your glory, God. God says, Moses, you can't see my glory. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. Do you know what Paul says? Where all the glory of God resides? Where does all the glory of God reside? 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures, you see the full glory of God and God floods your heart with joy and peace and satisfaction and hope because you're looking through the eyes of faith. So if you want to see the glory of God, don't look within like a mystic looking for that inner light. Don't try to climb the ladder of moralism. If I just good enough, maybe, maybe I can see God. 
Don't give in to all the weird stuff out there that's really devoid of any biblical truth to try all these crazy things to somehow see God. And then don't be so rationalistic that you have to have God prove to you. Look through the eyes of faith. And the more that you read this word, the more that you meditate upon this word, the more that you see and know and love Jesus, the more he's going to reveal himself to you more fully as you read about him. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, or keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You can only truly see and know God through the eyes of faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the ultimate question for you is, do you have eyes of faith? Where are your eyes? Are they fixed on Jesus? Do you have eyes of faith that capture, that hold on to, that grab on to, that trust in Christ alone? As the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through Him. He and the Father are one. Jesus speaks the words of the Father. Jesus does the works of the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you want to see God, look at Jesus through the eyes of faith. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Do you have eyes of faith this morning to trust fully in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Walk by faith, not by sight. And Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, there's many times that we get sidetracked by all these different ways to try to see you. As opposed to getting back to the written word of God, the words of God seeing you, Jesus, as portrayed in the pages of Scripture, we may try all these different ways. And Lord, sometimes it is a struggle because we can't see. We can't see heaven. I don't know what heaven looks like. Lord, I don't know what you even look like. We've got descriptions in the Bible, but to be honest, none of us have have been there. None of us have seen it. We are, we are totally trusting in what we cannot see. But Lord, it's not blind faith because you've proved over and over again how much you've loved us. We can look back over our lives and see how you've been faithful. We can see your hand at work. We can see your plan being, unf- being fulfilled. We can look back at an empty tomb and realize that Jesus, you've risen from the grave. So help us to walk by faith, not by sight. And as we sang earlier, one day our faith will be sight. And the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. Lord, until that day when we see you face to face, when you do come back or we enter heaven, would we trust, would we live by faith, would we grasp hold of you, knowing that you never let us go? Our faith may be weak, 
Our faith may be small, but it's not the size of our faith, Lord. It's the size of our God. And you hold us in your powerful grip. So, Lord, my prayer this week is that we would all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep looking to you, Lord. Keep seeking you. Keep trusting you. And when we do, we will find you to be a perfect Savior that loves us, that holds us, that equips us, that blesses us for your glory. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's never taken that first leap of faith, they've never trusted you for the very first time, they, maybe they've been trusting in all these different ways, maybe they've been trusting in being good, being moral, or maybe they've been trusting in mysticism or, or, or rationalism or all these different ways to somehow get to you, God. They've never just simply trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Would today be their day of salvation where they trust in Christ alone for the very first time? Thank you for your love for us, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.